Amen. Well, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 14 this morning. If you would turn there in your Bibles, Genesis chapter 14. There are pew Bibles if you don't have a Bible. You don't have to have one, but it's, an, it's good, especially in a sermon, to look at God's Word. I agree with Pastor Appleton completely. It's also good to just hear the reading of God's Word. In fact, I actually closed my eyes during the reading and just tried to focus on God's Word. And you know what? It's hard because we're not used to doing that. We're always distracted. We always want to look at something. I think it's really worthwhile to do that, to just listen to the Word of God. Allow the auditory gospel to affect you. And it alone, I think that's it's a neat way of, uh, again, hearing and getting God's word in your heart. And for 1,500 years, that's the way almost all Christians had to do it. Because they either couldn't read or they couldn't have a book. Because there was no printing press and it was very expensive. So it's kind of a new thing that you can look at God's word in your lap. Uh, hearing the word of God is what God has used throughout history. Well, in this text, beloved, I'm not going to say a lot about prefacing it. We saw last time. God blessing Abram, urging him to believe with the eyes of faith what he could not see, right? Promises that God even increased. After Abram was willing to give it up all to serve his servant Lot, Abram had the rights. He gave them to his servant. So God comes and gives Abram more blessings. How good Abram came off last week as compared to the week before when he's trying to allow his wife to go into Pharaoh's harem and he's getting wealthy from it and he's not stopping it and Not this time. This time he trusted in the Lord, put himself in the lowest place, and then God exalts him even more. And God tells him, please, lift up your eyes. See my promise. Believe my promise. How God is delighted when we believe. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But with faith, God is pleased. Our God is pleased when we believe his word, when we take him at his word. And that's what we saw in our text. Well, this text is a difficult text. Not in one sense. It's easy to read what happens and understand it. Now, Melchizedek's somewhat of a mystery. But in this text, Abram, the man of faith, the head of the church, is Abram the warrior. Abram the conqueror. Abram the general. The liberal scholars don't know what to do with this text. Where does this come from? How did this myth get into the rest of the myth, right? Well, we know this is fact and truth, and that's why this is here. Let's see what God has for us in this word. I believe it's a powerful sermon for us, a powerful truth, whether or not it comes out in the sermon. May God bless the reading and the hearing and the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray for your spirit. We pray for that your word would be proclaimed accurately and faithfully, that you would cause us to hear it in faith. I pray, Lord God, that you would humble us as we need to be humbled, that you would comfort us as we need to be comforted. We are all in different places. Cause your word to meet us where we need that would glorify you, that would benefit your people. Have mercy on your people today and visit them by your spirit through your word and help me to be accurate and faithful. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here now the reading of God's holy and perfect word. A little bit longer of a reading, but it is all the word of God. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedarlamer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Kedarlamer. In the thirteenth year they rebelled. 
In the 14th year, Kedorlaomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim and Ashtaroth, Karnayim, and the Zuzim and Ham, and the Emim in Shaveh, Keriathayim, and the Horites in their mountain of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back, and they came to Enmishpat, that is, Kadesh. And they attacked all the country of the Amalekites, also of the Amorites, who dwelt in Hezazon, Tamar, and the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Sidim against Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariak, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions, and they went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and they departed. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol, and brother of Aner. They were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night. And he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him, the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. After his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and he said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eschol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. The word of the Lord. I want you to notice the mystery of Melchizedek first off. We're going to get this one right out of the way. The mystery of Melchizedek. Melchizedek appears in Scripture... 11 or 10 or 11 times, depending on what manuscripts you're using, eight or nine times in the New Testament. Is that surprising? Only twice in the Old Testament. And we read them both. The one time he appears in Genesis, his name, that is, and the one time he appears in the Psalms, his name, Psalm 110. That's all the teaching on Melchizedek 
in the Old Testament. All of the rest of it is in the New Testament, the eight or nine times, and almost entirely in the, well, it is entirely in the book of Hebrews. We almost read all of it. There were two more mentions in chapter five. So he's really a New Testament figure in a lot of ways. His name means, as we saw in our scripture reading, the king of righteousness, which also king of Salem. Salem is peace, shalom. Yeru is city of in Sumerian. So Yeru, shalom, city of peace, Jerusalem. And he's the king of peace. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. Wow, that's pretty provocative. We know who that is. There's only one of those. Later in Jerusalem, though, there's a title, probably a title, because we see Adonai Zedek. And Adonai is Lord. And Zedek is, again, righteousness. So Lord of righteousness replaces king of righteousness in Jerusalem. And Adizonic is not a Christ figure. He's actually an enemy of God's people. So we've got that there. We know that he is called priest of God most high. Most high is a title for God, the true God. 53 times in the Old Testament, 13 times in the New. Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary. The power of the most high. Most high, same Greek title in the New Testament. Will come upon you. This is the true God, in other words. The most high. He's priest of God most high. We see this priest coming out of this city. You know, of Canaanites in the land. We don't expect a priest of God, but this is the priest of God, and we know he's the priest of God because he calls, not only is he priest of God most high, title for the only God, he calls God the possessor of heaven and earth, and Abram repeats that title. Abram says, I am. I've raised my hand to the Lord, the God most high. The only thing he adds is Lord. All the other words Melchizedek describes. Right? So we know that he is a true priest. We know that because Abram pays a tithe to him. And tithes were commonly paid, we know this from ancient records, to kings or to religious figures, a part of worship or part of taxes. Tithes are mentioned in all kinds of documents. The Bible didn't invent the tithe. Don't blame God for it. But it is a, is a way that God, something God used that we honor God with our tithes, right? By the way, the circumcision's like that too. The Jews didn't invent that. There were other nations that circumcised their children. God took something in the culture and he gave it religious significance, the tithe, all right? But Abram pays the tithe to this priest. Therefore, and Abram is a servant of God. We know that already. Abram and God have had this relationship since chapter 12. By the way, they don't have a covenant yet. Huh. Guess covenant isn't relationship after all. But Abram is God's chosen one, and he pays a tithe to this priest of God, most high possessor of ever. So we know for certain that Melchizedek is a true priest of the true God. No mystery there. He is a priest. He is serving the true God, and that happens. The Jews say he's Enoch. I'm sorry. Some say, the minority opinion. The majority opinion is that he's Shem. If you take the very minimal view of the genealogies, no gaps, and if Abram is born when his father is 70, then Shem still is alive, and it could be Shem. If you take the view that I take that Abram is born when his father is 130, so that he leaves at 75 when his father dies at 205, which I think does a better job of, of showing the text's accuracy, but then Shem's already dead, okay? But some think that God sent Enoch back. Enoch back. Remember, God took Enoch, so this is Enoch. The Arabs say it's a grandson of Eber through Peleg on his father's side, on his mother's side, a grandson of Japheth, son of Noah. 
Some say he's an angel, an angelic being come down from heaven. Some say it is the pre-incarnate Christ, probably the majority opinion among Protestant and Reformed scholars in some sense, though. But even there, you've got to pause a little bit. It's not that simple, right? Nobody who says it's a kind of pre-incarnate Christ wants to say that Jesus had a prior human nature before the incarnation in his mother's womb. It's a little bit more complicated. You can't just say God incarnated the second person of the Trinity 2,000 years before Bethlehem in Jerusalem. And he lived this human life and he was a priest and he was a king. And then, you know, maybe he ascended into heaven or something. And then he did it a second time. Nobody wants to say that, right? So at some point, we've got some mystery here. At some point, you want to say that, you know, even the pre-incarnate Christ view is it's some kind of a theophany where Christ appears as a man, but he doesn't really live a human life 2,000 years before he takes the nature that he takes in the womb of Mary. So we do have mystery. And we do have some things that we need to try to figure out and consider. I'm not going to say a whole lot more. There's other things about Melchizedek. The Dead Sea Scrolls have There's a Melchizedek Dead Sea Scroll where it actually takes Isaiah 61 and it says, in the acceptable year of Melchizedek. The scripture says in the acceptable year of the Lord, and they have him as this eschatological judge who's the judge and the executioner of Belial and demons and the wicked, and he's coming again. Sounds a lot like Jesus. And that's in the Dead Sea Scrolls. They also have some mention of him, and it sounds a lot like the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews shows us, right, really, that Melchizedek, first of all, true priest of God, Second of all, greater than Abram. You, you, the, 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 Hebrews actually says that literally. The greater blesses the lesser. And Abram, again, is the head of the church, typical head of the church. Jesus is the ultimate and only head of the church. But there were typical heads under the time of Israel because that's what the Davidic kings were. And Abram is the king and the priest. Let's not forget that. Who's building altars and leading in worship? Abram! Some say, well, maybe Abram is just recognizing his priesthood. But then Calvin asked the question, but isn't Abram also a priest? How can there be a higher priest than Abram? Where's that from? And that's the mystery of this character. And scripture doesn't explain it. It just gives us this fact. And the fact of the matter is Christ comes as a priest in the, after the order of Melchizedek. Right? After the order of this mysterious figure. Um, You can't make it a one-to-one because you can't say that Christ comes after the order of himself. Um, But it is clearly a kind of theophany, a kind of of an image of what Jesus would do and would be. He would be the priest that would stay forever, just as we don't see any genealogy or anything else in this text. So I think it's going to be something you're going to have to ask God ultimately in heaven. Maybe you'll meet Melchizedek. But I can tell you this, the most important thing in the text is not so much... Who this man is, which I think that, again, we just don't have enough information to definitively say. The important thing is his blessing, that he blesses and affirms Abraham as the chosen and blessed one of God. And also in his person, we see that this plan of God is bigger than Abram, right? Because there's another priesthood that's not going to come from Abram. And there's another kingship that's before Abram. He is the king of Salem and the priest of God most high. And it's not through Abram's loins that that happens. And so Abram himself is, is typical here. We've got to see that. He's pointing to his greater son. And of course, he himself would have known that. He's looking to the seed promise of the woman. His faith isn't in Abram. His faith is in the seed. 
that God promised to Eve, that God has now continued to Abram, and that we know is our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the mystery of Melchizedek. Secondly, notice the instability of this world. I want you to notice the instability of this world. The very first war of mankind is recorded in this text. I'm not saying it is the first war, but it's the first war the Bible tells us about. And so the Genesis, again, being the book of firsts, we see war, and this war affects adversely the people of God. Remember I mentioned to you, Lot is a believer. The New Testament says unequivocally, righteous Lot, three times. He's a believer, and he had to believe while he's with Abram, who's worshiping the Lord, because after that he's in Sodom. He's not hearing the gospel then. So he's a believer. Abram calls him twice in this text, my brother, or his brother. He's actually called by the narrator, Abram's brother, even though he's his nephew, and the text says that too. He's his brother in the Lord. He's his brother and fellow believer. And so these two believers are adversely affected. Abram has to go to war. Doesn't tell us how many people he loses, but he loses some. You lose people in war. People die in war. And guess what? Christians die in war. And Christians get cancer. And Christians lose children. And Christians suffer thorns and thistles and bee stings. It does happen. It happens, right? We're not, deli- we're not promised. Oh, well, you're a Christian. Everything's going to go great with you. No. No, a lot of times that's when your trials begin. Because God actually is going to begin to use you to glorify him. And actually to teach you to put your hope in heaven. Right? God does that. God reminds us that a lot. That our hope isn't here. It can't be down here. How foolish of Lot, again, to choose the Jordan Valley entirely thinking about economic prosperity. How foolish. Now he's lost that. They've taken his goods. And they've taken the goods of Sodom. All of them. They've taken everything. They've come into the land and they've taken it all. To put your faith in this world. Oh, you say, I have a bank account and it's secure. Oh, I live in a country and they have a good army. They had five kings protecting them. And then an army of four kings came and beat them. There is no security in this world. There is no ultimate safety in this world. This world is unstable. Only a fool would put his hopes in this world. Jesus said, he who desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What does that mean? Well, if your hope is in this world and you're trying to find your life in this world, it's going to go. No matter what happens. I told you before, nobody actually owns anything in this world. You don't own your house. You're going to die and it's going to still be there and you can't take it with you. And everything else that you have. How foolish to put your hope in this world. But if you... Lose your life for the sake of Christ. If you're willing to give up everything just to have Jesus. And it's very rare, by the way, that God actually makes you give up everything. But if you are willing, and you have to be that. I mean, to be a Christian, he has to come first. He has to be the most important thing. If you're willing, you will find your life. You will find everything. And it will happen. It might, again, you might go through difficulties in this life. But you will find eternal life and joy beyond measure and beyond imagining. And so we really do need to give up everything and put God first. At least be willing to do that and understand that. But I want you to consider real quickly the instability of this world. The falsehood and temporarily uh, uh, temporaneousness of this world. With the stability and the truth and the eternality of the word of God. 
Because this text has something else going for it. And I'm not going to do a lot with this, but this is encouraging to me. You know, these kind of historical narratives are really great for showing the truth and the accuracy of Scripture. Remember I would do this in the book of Acts? And I would show, especially those chapters where Luke would describe, you know, the different ports they went to and the nautical practices. And modern scholars are amazed at how accurate Luke was. Like like he really went on these trips and like he really wrote this stuff down. Yeah, he kind of did. But that's what we see in this text. Let me just, let me try to build your faith in the word of God. Because, you know, people will point things out. You know, well, he goes uh, as far as Dan, verse 14. Don't they know Dan wasn't a city yet? Because the Danites haven't even come into the land for hundreds of years. No, it's not that Dan. And we know it's not that Dan because Abram's pursuing them as far as Hobah of Damascus, which goes east-north. Not west-north, where the Dan of the Danites was. This is another Dan. And there are many towns named Dan in the ancient texts, Elba uh, tablets and so forth. Because it's just a common name. It means judge. Dan. So this is a different Dan. But what I want to notice is not just the things the critics say that are wrong. I want to show you the things in this text that show the accuracy of the Bible that's amazing. First of all, we know that there were ancient city-states just like this at this time. It's at least, at the very minimum... It's 240 years after the Tower of Babel when a few thousand people were scattered. And this is the immediate area of that, right? 240 years. That's the minimum. I think it's closer to 340 years, again, because I think there's at least one or two gaps in the genealogy. And I think Noah or Abram is born 70 years or 60 years after um, his older brother is. So that gives you more time. But even at 240 years, America uh, turned 240 in 2016. That's also the year we finished this sanctuary. 2016 in March was our first Sunday in here. 2016, America turned 240. In 1776, think of this nation. Think of the states like Oklahoma and Colorado and North Dakota. What did they look like? Was there any state governments there? Were there any armies there? Were there any kings and taxes? And, you know, 240 years, you go there now, would you think, oh, well, this is all brand new because, you know, it's only 240 years old. I mean, it looks like it's been there forever. The, the, the police forces, the governors, the mayors, the authority structures that are in place, the economic structures. It's been 240 years. It's not surprising to find five kings of city-states and four kings of city-states and kings of bigger empires. You would have had this for centuries at this point in the text. We're not talking America. We're talking a tiny little region in the Middle East, much smaller. That same period of time, there would have been massive civilization and generations of rulers replacing one another over and over again. So clearly, uh, that is the case. And again, we know they had city-states. We know they would have uh, tribute that would be paid to the, the more wealthy and more powerful kings. And sometimes they would rebel and wars like this would happen. This is true to so many ancient records. We also know that every one of these kings are mentioned in ancient records. Now, we can't positively identify any of them. But they're mentioned as kings. These names are common royal king names. They're all over the place. Again, in ancient names. And every one of the place names are as well. And most of the place names we can identify. And they're right in the general area at least. Because we can't always precisely identify them. But they're right in the general area of what Moses is describing. In fact, the most modern scientific up-to-date commentary I use. The New International Commentary. Huge series. Victor Hamilton like around 1998 or whatever when he's writing this, he says this about this text. Looking at the route that the kings went in verses 5 to 7, he says this, quote, the geographical exactness 
given to the description of this route, followed by the, by the invaders, is striking. That's his word. This is an academic scholar. They don't talk like that. Is striking. All of the place names are known. And the exact same place, I'm sorry. And this is the exact Transjordan trade route that was known as the King's Highway and was used for centuries. This is exactly the way they would come. What Moses writes hundreds of years before uh, his time. Because this is about four or five hundred years before. These events are happening four or five hundred years before Moses is writing this. Okay? And then it says this. And the exact same places are are what Israel uh, goes through when they enter the land four or five hundred years later. So it's the, so we know the, again the amazing accuracy of this text. Little little things like verse seven. They struck all the country of the Amalekites. Why does it say they struck the Amorites and they struck the Horites? But why they struck the country of the Amalekites? Actually, it's the field of the Amalekites. It's Sadeh in Hebrew because there were no Amalekites yet. They they didn't exist yet. So Moses speaking proleptically says they struck the country of the Amalekites. Whatever people groups were there, I'm not going to tell you, but the, the country. Even that part is accurate. How, Moses wouldn't have known that if he's writing 500 years later and making it up. He had to have knowledge of what was actually happening. By the way, another really cool thing, at least, well, at, in this text, there are five places where an onomastic update is given. What is that? A name change. All right, Five, I don't know if there's another chapter in the Bible that has more of these. Onomastic updates where you see the name is now this, you know, Fort Pitt used to be Fort Duquesne or whatever. Uh, and, when you, and you update the name because it's changed now. And we know it is something different. You know, okay, that McDonald's down there used to be the Winkies or whatever. <laughs> there are no more Winkies in Wilmerding anyway. But for, at five times, I'm going to go quick, okay? 2C, this, verse 2, the, at the end. The king of Bela, that is Zoar. See, the Israelites knew it as Zoar 500 years later. It used to be called Bela. Verse 3, the valley of Sedim, that is the Salt Sea. They knew it as the Salt Sea, but it used to be called the valley of Sedim because there was no water there. It was a valley of Lush Valley. The, the, the Dead Sea formed after God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 7 again. To and Mishpat, that is Kadesh. All oh, the Jews knew about Kadesh, but it used to be 500 years ago in Mishpat. Again, verse 8, Bela, that is Zoar. And then again in verse 17, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shabbat. That is the king's valley. Used to be the valley of Shabbat. Probably got the name the king's valley when all these kings were there. When this happened, Moses couldn't have known this. He couldn't go back in time and tell you what it was to people that didn't know those names unless this was true. Do you see that? One of the the things that the critics hate about this text more than anything else is 318. Why did Moses write 318? That's really difficult. You don't put that kind of a precise exact number in myth or in fiction because it's too easy to prove it wrong. You round it off. He took 10, and you exaggerate, he had 10,000 warriors. Why would... Why would he write 318? That sounds like a historical fact that he's trying to convey. That's right. That's exactly what it is. The liberals are right. This text is saying it's historical and factual. And 318 is a powerful argument for it. There's so many other things we could go into, but I'm going to move on. But I'm just saying all this to say that the Bible is true and accurate wherever we can test it. 
wherever we can test it. Don't put your faith in the instability of this word. Trust in the stability of the word of God. Even if you have some arguments that you've heard that I haven't answered. I guarantee you there are answers for them. Even if we can't entirely explain everything. But the amazing accuracy of God's word should be enough for you. As the Westminster Confession says, the word of God, quote, doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. The scriptures doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Thirdly, I want you to notice war in the Christian. I want you to notice war in the Christian. Abram's called the Hebrew because he's been living here for a number of years. He's known as a Hebrew, a descendant of Eber, um, probably not the Habiru, which could be the Jews, but Eber is probably the more likely der- derivation of that because that's the way they would have known him, right? Lot's now living near Sodom, in Sodom. And when the city's taken, they know Lot, this powerful chieftain who has moved into their place, brought a lot of economic prosperity, is himself getting prosperous, talking about his uncle who has even had more tents than he did. Think about it, 318 men. How many tents is that? How many people is that? That's, those are the men that could fight war. That's not talking the kids. That's not talking the old men. That's not talking the women and the, and the girls. Abram probably had over a thousand people with him. The great large Bedouins and nomads that even to this day uh, live this way have hundreds of tents. Abram had 318 men in his house that could fight and they were trained. I want you to know that. Notice that in the text. They were trained servants who grew up in his house. Yes, it's the same word for slaves, but clearly they're like free men. They're like hired servants. They're warriors. Abram's Household would have been like a, like a mobile city. They would have needed government. They would have needed economy. They would have needed structure. You have, you know, hundreds, probably over a thousand people living together, making a living. You're no bad. You have flocks and herds, but there's children. You know, there's uh, uh, all sorts of other things. They need protection from the enemies. They would have needed some kind of a police force. They would have needed some kind of system of judgments when people wrong each other. And Abram is prepared. He has men that can defend his house. They know how to use weapons. And Abram himself knows war strategy. Look at verse 15. This is like reading, you know, something about Robert E. Lee. He divided his forces against them by night. He knew how to maximize his smaller force, make it appear bigger, and defeat these four kings who represented a much larger uh, group of people. He wins this great battle. He fights and he knows how to make allies with the just pagans around him. That's really important too. Look at it in verse 13 and 14. In verse 13 it says that Abram dwelt by the ter- terebinth trees of Mamre who was an Amorite, who was the brother of Eschol and the brother of Aner. They were allies the word covenant they had a compact with Abram they obviously have a a compact that consists in certain things in uh, a joint defense against each other mutual defense private property life justice they have this contract They're, they're they're going to support one another in times of difficulty this is the principle of co belligerency Where we join with people who are not, these aren't believers. But Abraham has a certain kind of contract with them. That if their lives are in danger, they're going to help each other. They're going to help each other resist evil and injustice. 
And they're going to help each other promote law-abidingness and, and peace in their lands. That's important. Abram does that. He maintains his separate faith in God. He has his own altars and stuff. He's not corrupting that. But he also has a relationship with this world based on justice. Based on mutual support in a time of an emergency. You know, that's the way we operate in this nation today. And that's the way I think we need to operate as Christians. This principle of co-belligerency. Robin and I are going to be hosting number two bus of um, Vision for the Unborn, Voices for the Unborn, as we go up to Harrisburg to, to uh, assemble for pro-life, to assemble against the crime, the destruction of human life that is abortion, that we should all be concerned about. We're going up to do that. And you know what? If you come on that bus with us, I guarantee you're going to meet people who aren't Reformed Christians. You're going to meet people who aren't Protestant Christians. You're going to meet people who are Roman Catholic, who are Orthodox, who maybe are Jews, who maybe are other religions. Maybe they don't even have a religion. Maybe they're completely agnostic. They're going to be on that bus to go up there to stand for life. And I thank God for every one of them. We're not bringing them in to teach the scriptures. We're fighting to defend human life. You join forces with people like that. It doesn't matter what they believe. Are they just? Are they law-abiding? Are they going to fight to hold back evil? We're supposed to do that. Abram does that. We don't know how many men Mamre and Oner and Eskol have, but if they each have about 300, you've got a force of 12 to 1,500 people. Now you're talking something. Abram knows how to live and be a good neighbor to the unbelievers around him. And this contrasts with Lot. Seriously contrasts with Lot. Because Lot moves into Sodom. He goes down to Sodom. They're wicked in Sodom. They're not just in Sodom. They're morally perverted and wicked. We know the sin of homosexuality is rampant. And that is their sin. Don't listen to the modern commentaries that are absolute nonsense. Lack of hospitality. Yeah. Why is it then when he offers his daughters? They don't take them. It was homosexuality. It wasn't lack of hospitality. It was strange flesh, as Jude said. Strange flesh. They went after strange flesh. It wasn't that they weren't very nice. But Lot goes down there, and we know he doesn't maintain that, diff, that, that, that separation that, that Abram does. We know that. Because in a few years, we're going to meet Lot back in Sodom, and his two daughters are engaged to be married to two citizens of Sodom. And Lot's wife gets so enmeshed in the joys and luxuries of that city that when the angels themselves are are pushing them out of the city practically, she looks back longingly, the very thing God said not to do. And God struck her and turned her into a pillar of salt. Lot loses everything. He loses his wife. He loses his possessions. His daughters become so corrupt that they trick him into having sex with him. And he has children to his own daughters, which was even then an absolute scandal. This is what happens when you become the world. But the answer is not completely separate yourself from the world. That's not what Abram does. He has a contract. He has a covenant with unbelievers for mutual self-protection to stand up for justice to stand against evil. And they go to war together. And they win. And that's the huge difference. We are to be, 
We are not to be of the world, Lot, but we have to be in the world, Abram. And Abram is a blessing to his unbelieving neighbors, an example to them, and, he, and they to him are a blessing to him. And so, fourthly, and lastly, I want you to notice peace in the Christian. I want you to notice peace and the Christian. By the way, I thank God in this co-belligerency idea. I thank God. This is how you know, I look at you know, in our world today. And I see people like you know, a Ben Shapiro or a Jordan Peterson or a Candace Owens or even a Dr. Laura who stand up for what's right. Who stand against evil. Who talk about true things. True principles. Creation ordinances. Who talk about the value of human life. And the dignity and the, and, uh, and the uh, limits of marriage. And all sorts of other things. That God made them male and female. And they're, they're, they're standing up for those things. I want to stand with them. That's co-belligerency. Right? That's different. When you have false teachers that come into the church. Because I know the argument's like, well, you know, you like Jordan Peterson and you like, you know, uh, Candace Owens and these others. And they're unbelievers. They, they would say a lot of wrong things about the faith. Yeah, they're not Christians. Or I don't know if they're Christians. They don't claim to be Christians. They're not threats to the church. And they're not trying to be the church. They're trying to be the state. And they know the difference. And I want to join with them in being the state. But when we have false teachers in the church, that's different. Oh, yeah, but they have some true things. They're corrupting the church. They're, they're saying this is Reformed theology, and it's not. That's dangerous. We want to get rid of them entirely. But I want to side with pagans who are fighting for truth, common grace truths. Because they're not trying to replace the church or corrupt the church. They're just standing with me on what the Bible says is true, even though they're not doing it for that reason. There's a difference, beloved. Co-belligerency, Yes. Allowing false teachers to come in because they have some good stuff? No. We throw them out completely. Look what Paul does with the false teachers. Look what the early church did with Arius. Well, Arius is good on some polity issues. No. We don't read Arius at all. Because he's a condemned heretic. And we shouldn't be reading condemned heretics. Because it's going to corrupt the church. But we want to partner with unbelievers who stand for what is right. And so notice peace and the Christian. I want you to notice peace And the Christian. You know the point with Melchizedek? It's not, as I said, who he is. It's his blessing. What is the blessing of Melchizedek? Melchizedek, who is king of righteousness and king of peace. What does he do when he goes out to meet Abram? He blesses him. He talks about the victory that God has given Abram. And now Abram has peace. He has peace. And what does Abram do with that peace? Does he immediately begin to lord it over... Other people. He's just conquered a good portion of the land. Why doesn't he just take it? God said it's his. He's just taken it with his sword. By right of conquest, he has not only the the goods, he has the souls, he has everything. The king of Sodom says, you know, you keep the goods, give me the souls. It's all Abrams. He just won it in a war. He doesn't keep any of it. He doesn't want to have the kingdom this way. He's like David. I'm going to wait until the Lord gives me the kingdom. I'm not going to take it with my sword. I'm going to wait. Until God brings it to me his way. He doesn't take anything from it. Not a sandal strap. How different from when he was in in Egypt. When he accepted the camels and the sheep and everything else. He learned his lesson. And Abram lost face in Egypt. Boy does he look noble before his servants here. As he won't take anything from this pagan wicked king. 
As if he got paid to do this. As if he's a warrior for hire, a mercenary. No, he's a servant of God and he went to war for love. Nations go to war for possessions, for power, for revenge, for greed. To bring the utopia they've discovered, you know, communism to everyone else. A few billion people have to die in the meantime, but then it'll be good. Abram goes to war to rescue his brother. He goes to war to love his neighbor. And he was prepared to do that because he was a godly man who protected his house. And so what does he do now that he has the victory, that he has the peace? He doesn't bind others. And he doesn't oppress others. And he doesn't lord it over others. That you've got to do things the way I do things. Do you notice that? He took a vow. He's not going to take anything, but he's going to make sure that his young men can not have to return anything that they've eaten. Because that's, oh, by the way, that's the point of the bread and wine with Melchizedek. You know, I know, and there's medieval scholars that say, here is Christ bringing out, you know, the sacrifice of the mass. I guarantee you, Melchizedek is not coming out with one cup of wine and a piece of bread. There are wagons. When it says he brought out, he's the king. Wagons of bread and wine are coming out. For what? To, to replenish Abram's army. They're tired. They just went 150 miles to Damascus for Pete's sake. They're all eating. Bread is just all kind of food and wine is, to, is drink. And so they're, 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 he's refreshing them. And, and the reason I'm saying that so adamantly is because the New Testament, when it mentions so much about who Melchizedek is, it never makes a single word of comparison between the bread and wine of Melchizedek and the bread and wine of Christ. And that's why it's illegitimate for us to do that. It's illegitimate for us to find something in a picture, in an image, and then to bring that out, you know, like in a parable or something, and try to find all the things. The New Testament says it's his fact that he doesn't have genealogy, that Christ is the priest forever after his order, not after the order of Levi, after this order. Nothing is said about the bread and wine. It was just given again for food and drink. But what I want to notice is Abram doesn't begin to try to lord it over people and do the things that he thinks it ought to be done. And I, this is a great danger in the church. We're in a time of peace, and we begin to look around at other families, and we say, well, that's not the way you should do it. We look at other couples, and we say, they're not doing it the way we think it should be done. They're not relating to each other the right way. They're not dividing the duties of the household up the way we think it should be done. They're not raising their kids and educating their kids. Why, did you see the school they're sending their kids to? Why? And we begin to want to take the, the things that we decide that are good, that, that work for us, and we want to make it a law for the church. And you cannot do that. You cannot do that. One of the reasons why I think Providence has not suffered some of the great Scandals that have hit the churches in this presbytery since I've been here. I moderated. I was the moderator from presbytery at Monroeville when they went from three pastors to one and from 300 to less than 100 because of the madness that was going on and the squabbles and the pettiness, judging one another. Churches was like this. And I was there and I moderated again. I was chosen at presbytery. I guess they like to throw me out there. When First Reformed had all those issues. And the session and the congregation and the pastor were all up in arms. And again, this judging, this condemning, this meddling destroys churches. If there's one thing that I'm about, it's freedom. I will stand up for freedom. You are free to decide how to run your house. You and your wife figured that out. And nobody tells you how to do it. And if they do, ignore them. 
because they no, they're not your Lord. You'll answer to God. Absolutely. The husband is the head of the wife. He is to love the wife as Christ loves the church. And he will answer to that. And the wife is to submit to her husband and to respect him. And she will answer for that. And how they decide that works in their marriage is none of your business. It's not. You figure that out. You'll answer to God. But you figure that out. Unless there's the husband's beating up the wife or the wife's running out and cheating on the husband. Clear sin which then is the church's business, not yours. We are not to do that. You think I'm reading this into this text? Matthew, Henry, and Calvin both make this point. Let me read you their quotes. I love this. Calvin, reading these verses in our text where Abram demands that Onair and Esco and Mamre get their portion. They don't have to be bound by my vow because it worked for me. I want them to get their portion. I want them to do it their way. This is the text that's giving rise to this doctrine. Calvin says this, quote, Let everyone regard what his own vocation demands and what pertains to his own duty in order that men may not, listen, prejudge one another according to their own will. For, Calvin goes on, and now he gets to classic Calvin language. For, it is a moroseness too imperious to wish that what we ourselves follow as right. I hope you do what you think is right. What else would you do? What we ourselves follow as right and consonant with our duty should be prescribed as a law to others. It is a moroseness too imperious to think that what you think works is now a law. Wait a minute, your husband, your, your wife is working that job? She shouldn't be working that job. Wait a minute, your kids, you're doing devotions this way? You shouldn't be doing devotions that way. It's a moroseness too imperious to take what looks, works for you and to impose it. Listen to Matthew Henry. Those who are strict in restraining their own liberty ought not to impose those restraints upon the liberties of others, nor to judge them accordingly. You don't judge others that way either. We must not make ourselves the standard to measure others by. We must not do that. We must respect and honor and love one another. We need to pass on the blessing of Melchizedek. I remember when Growing Kids God's Way came out. You remember that? We just joined our first New Testament or first uh, Reformed Church. We hadn't joined yet, but we were attending it regularly. And this new movement, Growing Kids God's Way, and this is the way you raise kids God's way. And this is the way husbands and wives relate God's way. It was written by the Ezos, a couple. It's a whole program that you did. And everything was mapped out. Everything. Husband, wife, from morning till they get in bed, children, morning till everything's backed out and it's all guaranteed. You just do this program by gumption. Your kids are going to be so successful and they will be saved. I could see the snake oil salesman. And it'll all work. That's what the cults always do. It's all going to work. You just got to do your part. You just got to follow the system, right? It's your works after all. It is your works. Cults, legalism, false teachers. They even got to the point where there was a Christian way of breastfeeding. And if you didn't breastfeed, ladies, the way the Christian way of breastfeeding is, and they claim to find it in Scripture, why, your kid would probably go to hell and not get saved. Because you're just going to bring sin into them. Because you breastfeed every three hours instead of every four, whatever it was. It was insane. And these people typically go after you young parents with kids. Because you have the most to lose in this world. And they know that. And they capitalize on your fears. Oh, follow the system. It'll work. 
Don't trust in grace alone, in Christ alone, because you're a sinner and nothing you do deserves mercy, but he is good and he is God and he died on the cross for you and teach your children that. And don't think you're going to save them some other way. Oh, beloved, why would we take our brothers and sisters in Christ, in this church, who love the Lord, who believe in his word, who worship with us every Sunday, who by the grace of God, they're trying to live for God in the way that seems best to them, according to their particular time and place and circumstances and relationships and finances and health and relations and gifts and graces and sins and weaknesses. And you don't understand any of that. And you're going to impose your system on them because that's the Christian way. No, pass on the blessing of Melchizedek. Pass on the blessing of Melchizedek. The righteousness of Christ alone. And be at peace with one another. Be at peace with one another. Try to serve others. Humble yourself below them. And serving others isn't going around telling them what to do. That's a tyrant. That's not humble, that's arrogant. When you humble and serve and try to help one another, do things their way. Insist that God blesses them when they do it their way as Abram does, to honor Eskel and Mamre. Let them have their portion. Let them be blessed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. We pray, Lord God, that you would bless your people and establish them, cause them to trust in you alone, not in their works, and cause us to be a blessing to one another. Father God, let us not judge one another on practices that we think are good. But now we're going to say, you have to do this to be a Christian or to be faithful or whatever. Oh, Lord, deliver us from that. Let us remember that you don't legislate method. You call us to believe, to repent, and to obey. And, Father, you are our Lord and no one else. And I pray that we would remember that and that you would indeed bring the blessing of Melchizedek on this church, righteousness and peace. In Jesus' name, amen.